In today's passage, we meet a fascinating figure named Apollos. He was an eloquent teacher who taught Jesus accurately, but he didn't understand some of the key implications of the gospel message. So think for a moment about something that you came across and you were really excited about it. It could be anything. It could be a car, a book, a game, a sport, your wife. And the more you found out about it, your joy, your excitement only increased. Well, Apollos understood that Jesus was the Christ and that the death of Jesus was offered for the forgiveness of sins. But what Apollos didn't understand yet was how that related to the fulfillment of the new covenant. That is, to the promise of restored fellowship with God himself. Now, since it's a communion Sunday, if we were trying to orient where Apollos was at this point theologically... We might situate him between the two great declarations that Jesus makes when he institutes the Lord's Supper. Jesus first said, this is my body which is for you. In other words, my imminent death on the cross is a gift to you. I'm offering my righteous life in exchange for your sinful one. This is how our sins are forgiven. And this is the part of the gospel message I think that Apollos understood. But then Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the part of the message Apollos had not yet heard. What Apollos had not yet understood was the glory that the blood of Jesus, in addition to providing forgiveness of sins... In addition to this great reality, the blood of Jesus also sealed God's new covenant promise to restore fellowship with man forever. So today in communion, we will celebrate both of these glorious realities. Now our passage is Acts 18, verses 18 through 28. You'll recall that Paul has remained in Corinth, and he stayed there because God gave him a vision. Apparently, Paul was terrified or exhausted or both because of everything that was happening around him, and God strengthened him by giving him a vision. And he spoke to Paul in that vision and said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. No one's going to hurt you in this city because I have many people in this city. And that message comforted Paul to the point where he stayed much longer. And that's where we pick up here in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancre he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, 
I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Spirit, help us to see this ourselves now as clearly as we possibly can. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our beloved Lord. Amen. So let's, let's crystallize the essence of our passage like this. The more, the more clearly we see the gospel, the more freely we'll share the gospel. The more clearly we see the gospel, the more freely we'll share the gospel with others. Now you can see as I read the passage that it breaks out pretty neatly into two main sections. So in Verses 18 through 23, we'll look at the mission. And then in verses 24 through 28, we'll look at the message. When you think about the course of your life, how much confidence do you have that God is directing your life for your good and ultimately for his glory. Among the, the ups and downs and the joys and the disappointments, the successes and the failures, are you able to see God's guiding hand of providence in your life? Or do you often just feel confused? about what in the world God is doing. One 19th century pastor put it this way. He said, the longer I live, the more faith I have in God's providence and the less faith I have in my interpretation of his providence. But I wonder if the Apostle Paul ever felt like that. I mean, he has stuff going on in his life that is crazy. And I don't know if Paul trusted his own interpretation of God's providence, but I know this. Paul trusted his God who was directing his life. As we look at the mission that Paul continues to pursue, to, to make Jesus known where Jesus is yet known, 
there are clear evidences of God's directing grace in Paul's life. It's, it's evident from Paul's actions that he is trusting in God's guidance as he faces uncertainty everywhere he travels. We've already noted that the whole reason that Paul is still in Corinth is because God had spoken to him to comfort him in the midst of his struggles. But eventually, Paul feels the need to head, head back to his sending church in Syrian Antioch. So he begins the long journey across the sea from port to port to get back there. When they arrive in Ephesus, Paul continues to follow the mission that God has given him. Think about that. He's just on his way home. But the second they land in Ephesus, he runs straight into the synagogue and begins reasoning with the Jews because this is the mission that God has given him. In this case, Paul was really well received. So much so that they, they asked Paul, please, please stay with us and, and, and teach us more. And he declined. But he said, verse 21, I will return if God wills. Now, I think this is Paul doing much more than just kind of saying the polite Christian thing, right? If God wills, I will return. Think about where he is. He is in Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia. The last time that Paul and his companions came through the regions of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia. So they were going to go north of Asia, then into Bithynia, and they were forbidden again by the Spirit of Jesus to enter there. So I think when Paul says, look, I'll return to you if God wills, I think that's exactly what he means. If God allows, I will come back and I will share more with you. Acts 16, verses 6 and 7. So two things are clear at this point. One, God is directing this mission. And two, Paul desires to be faithful to God throughout the mission. Now, Earlier when I asked you about whether you could see God's, God's guiding hand in your life, even when it feels like your life is just all over the place, the reason it's so important to recognize when we are struggling to see God's hand at work in our lives is because our fidelity to God, that is our faithfulness to God, often falters when we are unsure of what God is doing in our lives. It is precisely when failure or disappointments or uncertainty is strongest that our fidelity to God is often weakest. But it's at these, at these very moments where we must fix our eyes on Jesus. That's where we can find strength. It's at these moments we need to be strengthened by the one who overcame Satan in the wilderness. It's at these very moments of weakness that we need to be strengthened by the one who overcame Gethsemane in his utter distress. It's at our own moments of weakness that we need to look to the one who commands us to take heart because he himself has overcome the world despite its trials and disappointments and sorrows. 
It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross on our behalf so that in our weakness, we would look to him who is the founder and finisher of our faith and we would find our strength in him. Now, we see an expression of of Paul's desire to be faithful or to maintain his fidelity to God at the end of verse 18. Because here, at some point, Paul made a vow to God to cut his hair. Now, if this was a a, a Nazarite vow, as as is described in Numbers 6, it could have been for a few different reasons. But in context, the reason that makes the most sense about why Paul would have taken a vow at this point is either because he wanted to express to God his desire to be faithful in the midst of his fear, so maybe it happened before God spoke to him, or as an expression of thanks to God for protecting him through this very dangerous time while he was in Corinth. Now, this vow might also explain why Paul heads to Jerusalem, because once someone's hair was cut, to complete the vow fully, the hair was to be offered and burned on an altar in Jerusalem. So that may explain in part why Paul is heading in that direction to the port of Caesarea and then eventually down to Syrian Antioch. But through all of this, what becomes clear is that God is directing Paul and Paul is attempting to discern God's guidance through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 19, it's subtle, but... I want to note that Paul continues to be faithful to the mission. Remember, he was reasoning with the Jews as soon as he got there. The reason that's so extraordinary to me is because Paul's life was so unimaginably chaotic. And even while he's transitioning, even while he's traveling, he's still seeking to be faithful to the mission that God has given him. Now, in verses 22 and 23... For the sake of historical context, let me point out that verse 22 essentially ends Paul's second missionary journey. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, which means the church at Jerusalem. That's the way it's always referred to because Jerusalem was so high up from an elevation standpoint. And then he went down, even though he's heading north geographically, to Antioch. So when he arrives back at his sending church, his second missionary journey is now over. And in verse 23, essentially his third missionary journey begins. Now, note at the very end of verse 23 that part of the mission is Paul strengthening the disciples. Does that strike you as odd? Paul's off again to share the gospel where Jesus is not yet known. But the first thing he does is to go back to all of the churches that were just started and make sure they're okay. Point them to Jesus. Remind them of the truth. Strengthen them in any way he can by proclaiming the gospel to them. It makes it clear that part of the mission is pastoral care. 
In addition to his evangelistic zeal, Paul was also called to demonstrate pastoral strength and sensitivity to all of the churches that he just started. It calls to mind Paul's statement at the end of 2 Corinthians when when he lists all of these, these hardships that he had faced on his missionary journey that are just staggering, multiple beatings, multiple floggings, multiple shipwrecks, and a stoning, which by the grace of God he survived. He was in danger in every city, and he often went without sleep, without food, and without shelter. And at the end of this, he adds, there is also the daily pressure on me because of my anxiety for all the churches. This is Paul's pastoral heart coming out. Whatever it is that he's facing, he's more concerned about his flock. All these tiny little fledgling churches that he started by God's grace. It was, it was in this context that he's sharing all of these hardships. In his weakness, when Paul cries out to the Lord about his thorn in the flesh, and it's precisely in this context that he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is is made perfect in weakness. Now, as this first section closes, I think that even the lack of fanfare here is instructive for us. Think about it with me for a second. Luke essentially marks the ending of the second most famous missionary journey in the history of the world and the beginning of the third most famous missionary journey in the history of the world, he marks that dramatically with a comma. They don't even get their own complete sentence. Paul finishes the journey and he's off again. There's no parade. There's no celebration. There's still work to be done. God is at work. Whatever's happening in Paul's life, the most important thing is the advance of the gospel. Therefore, the drumbeat of the mission, that is of the great commission, marches on. And that's true for us too. In sharing the gospel, we have to realize that he must increase and we must decrease. The more clearly we see that, the more freely we'll share the gospel. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And Apollos is one of the more fascinating, intriguing figures in all of the New Testament. He was so intriguing to Martin Luther that Martin Luther actually wondered if he might not have been the one who wrote the book of Hebrews. Ultimately, we're not going to find that out until that day, <laughs> and we can ask him. One of the things that's fascinating about Apollos is that he was obviously brilliant. He was extremely bold, and he was incredibly humble. 
He's willing to be taught by Priscilla and Aquila. What we are told about Apollos teaches us not just about him as an individual, but about the importance of the gospel message itself. In in this very brief scene here, we see that the gospel message is is teachable or explainable or understandable. Uh, We see that it's impactful because of what it does to Apollos. We see that the message is non-negotiable. And we see that the message, the gospel message itself, is logically defensible. So Apollos was from Alexandria in Egypt. Other than Rome, it was the second most powerful, most influential city of the empire. It was a powerhouse of culture and learning. And we are told that Apollos was eloquent and that he was competent in the scriptures. Now the word that's translated eloquent here, it certainly carries with it the idea that he was well-spoken. But most literally, it means that he was logical. The word that comes into English as competent means that his teaching was powerful. Even that Apollos was mighty in the scriptures. He was mighty in large part because he was logical in his explanations. We also learn that Apollos has been instructed or taught in the way of the Lord. We come to learn that what he understood was limited in terms of the gospel message, but it was accurate. That's a good lesson for us. However much of the gospel message we understand, whatever amount you know, if it's accurate, be bold in your proclamation of it. There's no reason to hide. The gospel message is true, and it is the only means of salvation for anyone who hears it. So don't hold back. Now, this description of Apollo should be encouraging to us as we, as we consider how we might talk about Jesus. Remember that our class on exactly this topic starts next week during the second hour in the equipping class. Now, given what's said about Apollos here, the reality of, of the matter is there are very, very, very few people like him. In fact, Paul told the Corinthians in his first letter to consider the reality of their calling and to recognize that not many of them were considered wise by the world's standards. Paul said, not many of you were powerful, nor were many of you from wealthy or well-known families. So that begs the question, why is this encouraging? It's encouraging because what made made Apollo such a force, humanly speaking, was simple. He was taught. In other words, he was willing to learn. He knew the scriptures, and he spoke in a clear and logical way. Now, that doesn't sound that daunting. We can apply that in other situations. Whatever level of speaking or thinking or ability we have can be used powerfully by God when we learn the gospel message, when we seek to know the Bible, and we, when we share what it says in a logical or clear way to the best of our ability. I mean, what else can we do? That's all we've got. This is the plan. But the power to believe our testimony 
Look, it comes from God anyway. The Holy Spirit has to do a work. Whether we're talking to a brilliant academic or whether we're sharing the gospel with our small children, the power to believe has to come from God. So, so let's be people who are occupied with the word. Let's, let's commit to learning the word and sharing the word and teaching the word and just see what God might do with that through his supernatural power. This is the plan. This is how people come to saving faith in Jesus. So let's do it. Now, Apollos himself was fascinating because as a result of this brief interaction with with Priscilla and Aquila here, he was used by God in a tremendous way. I mean, his... His influence in the church is incredible. Listen to what Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. In talking, addressing the Corinthians, he says, Some of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I mean, this description tells us two things. One, that Apollos became an extremely well-known teacher. Think about the names I just threw out there. Peter, the Apostle Paul, Jesus, and Apollos. Those are the teachers of the church, the most well-known ones at the time. That's pretty good company. But the second thing this tells us is that the message is always more important than the messenger. We would do well ourselves to remember this in our day. The actual message being proclaimed is infinitely more important than the specific preacher or podcast through whom that message comes. Paul put it this way, what is Apollos? Or what is Paul? And then he answers the question, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's a mature perspective for all of us to embrace. On a a very practical level, it's why we have a preaching team at River Oaks. To emphasize this point that the message is always more important than the messenger. Now, we see how impactful the the gospel message is here in verses 25 and 26. The phrase used to describe Apollos is that he was fervent in spirit. Though he only knew the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue right away. Now this this phrase fervent in spirit, it's, it's a phrase, but really it's an image. It's an image that means that the, the message created so much heat or fire in Apollos that he began to boil over like water in a kettle that's sitting over a fire. One translation describes Apollos as, as, as burning with zeal. 
But such is the transformative impact that the gospel can have on people. When it is seen clearly, the fire of the gospel often, often just bursts forth from the mouths of God's messengers. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones famously described preaching as logic on fire. Now, in light of these descriptions of Apollos, it's almost undoubtedly the case that this is exactly who he was thinking about when he coined that phrase. Perhaps even more dramatically in terms of imagery, John Wesley once said, light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. Now, that fire burns brightest when the gospel message itself is fueling that fire. As we move into verse 26, note the wisdom and the resolve of Priscilla and Aquila at the end of the verse. They pulled Apollos aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That's gracious, that's loving, that's thoughtful, and it's bold, very direct. Very helpful. When we, when we began, I, I described where I thought Apollos was in his theological understanding, somewhere between understanding that Jesus' death forgave sins, but not understanding that it secured the new covenant promises and the coming of the Holy Spirit. All he knew was the baptism of John. But it says that he knew the text or he knew the message enough that he was able to teach Jesus accurately. Well, if he's able to accurately teach that Jesus is the Christ, and this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, it is almost undoubtedly the case that he taught people about the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, that's perfectly consistent with the message of John the Baptist to call people to repentance. But the full implications of what Jesus accomplished had not been taught yet to Apollos. The new covenant fulfillment of restored fellowship with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit was absent thus far in his teaching. Now, that idea becomes really clear in chapter 19 as Apollos leaves Ephesus and heads to Achaia and as Paul arrives in Ephesus after he leaves. But much more on that next week. For now, I want to point out two other aspects of Apollos' interaction with Priscilla and Aquila. First, it becomes obvious that the gospel message is non-negotiable. These dear saints, that is Priscilla and Aquila, ensured that Apollos would understand the message. I think both for his own sake and probably because they recognize this man is a powerful communicator of God's truth. So they wanted to make sure he was equipped to be able to teach as accurately as possible. So we see, again, that the, the message of the gospel is teachable, that is, it's understandable, and it's explainable. 
and it has an impact on Apollos because immediately he goes and shares. Remember our main point. The more clearly we see the gospel, the more freely we will share the gospel. As soon as Apollos comes to this richer, more robust understanding, the first thing he wants to do is go out and tell more people about it. That's exactly the dynamic that is in play. So we need to keep reminding ourselves of the truth. We need to keep helping one another see the gospel clearly because the more clearly we see the gospel, the more freely we will share the gospel with other people. Second, how was it that Apollos came to a clearer understanding of the gospel? Let's put it in the context of discipleship. People who loved him were willing to, in a sense, confront him and share with him what he needed to know in order to be equipped for the ministry that God gave him. So think about the beauty of what's, what's happening here. The beginning of chapter 18, we remember that when Paul, when Paul first got to Corinth, he actually worked alongside Priscilla and Aquila because they were tent makers like Paul was, and he stayed in their home, right? Well, what do we think they were talking about while they were stitching tents together, Right? I mean, can you imagine what those conversations would have looked like either over dinner in their home or, or while they're making tents? Paul's talking about the implications of the cross. And Priscilla and Aquila are probably like, what? That's awesome. Then he talks about the fact that the, the, the blood of Jesus sealed the new covenant promises of God, which is why the Holy Spirit now has come and indwells believers and they were thinking, that is awesome. So when they get Apollos off to the side, they say, look, we got to tell you what Paul taught us. And they, they, they talk about forgiveness of sins. And Apollos like, yeah, I love that too. It's so great. And then they say, and then his blood secured the new covenant promises that Ezekiel wrote about. The Holy Spirit now has come to indwell believers forever and ever. And fellowship with God has been restored. Apollos says, I hadn't heard that yet, but that is awesome. And he goes out right away and wants to tell everybody else about it. In verses 27 and 28, we see that the truth of the gospel revealed in the scriptures is, is, is logically coherent because Apollos was able to powerfully refute the Jews' opposition to the message. One way we might say this is, we need not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is defensible logically. We need not be ashamed of the truth of the gospel because it can be defended scripturally. And it can be defended supernaturally by God. Oh, and it also happens to be the power of salvation for all who believe. That's how Apollos refuted the Jews and helped those who by grace believed. He logically argued for the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is always a gracious gift of God. That's what that little beautiful phrase means. Through grace, believed. In fact, to the people of this very region, because we're here in Ephesus, right? We're in Corinth and Ephesus. 
Paul wrote to the Ephesian believers that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2, 8. Therefore, in the bread and the cup, we remember the body of Jesus broken for the forgiveness of sins. And we remember the blood of Jesus which secured the new covenant promises, restored fellowship with God, and by which we now understand that the Holy Spirit indwells us and he will forever. That is good news. And Priscilla and Aquila would have said, Oh, and let me add a polis to that now. Yes and amen. May dominion, power, majesty, and glory be to God and to God alone forever and ever and ever.